Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com slash build. That's Chime.com slash build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Congressman Ro Khanna of California represents Silicon Valley, one of the richest areas in the country. But his candidate for president is Senator Bernie Sanders. Khanna is convinced the Democratic Socialists can expand opportunity for all Americans. But before we got into all that, I asked Khanna to talk about the Iran war resolution, a vote on which took place after we spoke last week. And one of the big surprises of that vote was a yes from conservative Congressman Matt Gates. Here at Kana, preview why that happened right now. Congressman Kana, thanks for coming on the podcast. Jonathan, I'm a fan and I'm honored to be on. Okay, let's talk about Iran, the president, and what the hell is happening. Well, first of all, it's scary what's taking place. I mean, for the president to be tweeting out about striking 52 cultural sites in Iran. That's a violation of the 1954 Hague Convention on Cultural Property, which, by the way, George W. Bush got the Senate to ratify. A conservative president put us in that treaty, and the president is cavalierly threatening to violate international law. And his strike on Soleimani was unconstitutional. No one questions that Soleimani has blood on his hands. No one questions that Soleimani killed Americans. But you can't go and take out a senior military leader and risk a provocation of war without coming to Congress. There's a limited self-defense exception, and that applies if you know the location of an attack, the time of an attack. You can take out militia carrying on that attack. That's not what happened here. Secretary Pompeo has said he doesn't know what time this attack would have taken place. He doesn't know when it would have taken place. He doesn't know where it would have taken place. So what Congress needs to do is make it very, very clear that we're not going to fund any offensive strikes against Iran or Iranian officials. We have the power of the purse. And we had this actually in the National Defense Authorization three weeks ago. Uh, My amendment, frankly, as people have now written, would have prevented the Soleimani attack. The Pentagon fought tooth and nail to take that provision out. Now we know why. And how was it taken out? You guys are in the majority. Well, that's a good, fair question. I mean, we had 27 Republicans who supported it in the House. By the way, people like Matt Gates, Mark Meadows, Jim Jordan, all who said the president should have no funding for an offensive strike uh, on Iran. A majority of the Senate supported Tom Udall's uh, Senate version of that uh, amendment. Uh, But Mitch McConnell didn't bring it up. And then it went to conference. And we... um, Conceded. I mean, we unfortunately took it out and gave the Pentagon a $738 billion defense budget. Huge increase. And I, I think in retrospect, we should have fought much harder. We should not have given the Pentagon that budget if they didn't have the prohibition on striking Iran. And some of us argued. I mean, I went to the House floor saying we shouldn't have done that. Imagine if we hadn't done that. There's no way, in my view, the Pentagon would have recommended the Soleimani killing to the president if they still needed Congress to approve their budgets. But once we gave them their budget without this Iran provision, they saw that they could steamroll Congress in the process, uh, and they 
took this action. Wait, is it the Pentagon that steamrolled the process or is it the president who well, steamrolled everything? It's the president in, in line with, I mean, Secretary Esper was on the phones working it with the members of the House and Senate. Uh, obviously, the White House was was working it. And there was a concern. Look, there, there's always a concern that you don't want to be seen weak on defense. And so there was a lot of pressure uh, that we don't want to hold up the defense budget. The reality is if you don't pass the National Defense Authorization, essential services will still be funded. It's not like the military comes to a halt. But the Pentagon wouldn't have gotten their budget increases that they were desperate for. Uh, so we should have, in retrospect, insisted that we're not going to fund the Defense Department uh, and pass their budget until they agree not to strike Iran. It was a missed opportunity. And to your point, Jonathan, the House has traditionally been reluctant to exercise the power of the purse. We have not done that when it comes to Iraq. I mean, we could stop funding troops in Iraq if we if we wanted to. We have not done that in Afghanistan. Barbara Lee has been saying year after year, why are we increasing our troops? Well, the House could stop funding it. That's That's the power we have. And at some point, we have to exercise that power. Well, speaking of power, we need to have a schoolhouse rock moment here. Because if we had a normal president and a normal administration that had actionable intelligence about Soleimani, what would a normal administration have done? A normal administration, at the very least, would have notified the Speaker of the House, the Majority Leader, the chair and ranking members of the relevant committees, the intelligence committees. This is the so-called Gang of Eight. The Gang of Eight, and would have shared that intelligence. Maybe it would be 24 hours before. Uh, In fact, a president would think that that was in their political interest to give them some cover to bring in some of the key leaders uh, beforehand and say, look, we're going to be taking this attack. I wanted to give you a heads up. We have actionable intelligence that American interests are at risk. Uh, none of that was done. I mean, there was no consultation. I mean, frankly, the president reports are notified his own family without notifying Congress. And it's just a total, total disrespect for the entire governing branch of, of Congress. Here's why your framers didn't think this would happen. They assumed that you would have ambitious people in the House and Senate who would not give up their own power to the president. Uh, but what they didn't count on is that people's party loyalty would be more than their loyalty to the institution in which they serve. And that's what's happened. I found it curious that you said a moment ago, you mentioned three names um, who voted for your your resolution that would have denied funding to the Pentagon for a specific strike on Iran. Gets Jordan and Med- Meadows. Yes, all Freedom Caucus members. Because they actually believe that we should not be in these foreign wars, these endless wars. They recognize that the war in Iraq was a blunder. They don't want us to be in another war in Iran. I mean, think about this. The whole economy of the Middle East is 3.5% of global GDP. United States is at 21%. China is at 15%. China hasn't been in a war since 1979. We've been in 40 conflicts since then. So these folks look at it and they say, if China is our competition, why in the world are we getting into more wars in the Middle East? And by the way, that was Trump's disingenuous message in 2016. Now, for everyone, and I, you know I supported Senator Sanders, but for anyone who says that Trump was going to be less hawkish than Hillary Clinton, 
this should be clear evidence that they were just wrong. <laughs> wrong and delusional. Uh, I mean, I never understood that. I never understood it too, but, but he managed to dupe uh, the, uh, some of the commentators about this. I mean, the, he ran saying that he was not going to escalate wars. Well, he's escalated the war in Yemen. He's escalated the strikes in Iran. Hillary Clinton would never have done this. She would have uh, pursued the JCPOA that 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 we had. The Iran nuclear deal. Iran nuclear deal. He's escalated the conflict in Venezuela, where we tried to anoint Guaido, and uh, he has uh, escalated and given a green light to the military to uh, not have to uh, have civilian checks. And in many ways, this actually highlights the need for impeachment. I mean, it's not just that he compromised our national security with Ukraine. We now have a president of the United States who is openly threatening to eliminate cultural sites, who's openly threatening to violate international law. I mean, at least with George W. Bush, you had the pretense that we were going to fight for liberal democracy. It was wrong, but at least they clouded it in rhetoric of idealism. With Trump, it's basically might makes right. There's no longer even a sense of having to live up to a sense of America's values. Before I get into why I brought up those three names, Getz, Jordan, and Meadows, I think listeners who might not be paying attention to this as closely as I think I am and that you are as a member of Congress, explain to people why this action, the killing of Soleimani, why that is such a flashpoint in the Middle East and in our relationship with um, Iran, such as it is? Soleimani was one of the highest ranking military and political leaders in Iran. People have compared his position to the director of the CIA or the head of our Joint Chiefs of Staff. He is someone who the average Iranian knew uh, of. And no one is saying he was a good actor. He had American blood on his hands. He was responsible for campaigns against America. But taking him out is going to now lead to retribution. And there is a reason that George W. Bush, that Dick Cheney, that President Obama, all who had the opportunity to take him out didn't because they didn't want to start a war with Iran. They understood that uh, this would put American troops at greater risk. They understood that this would put uh, American lives of our personnel at greater risk. And regardless of what you think on the substance, and I don't think it was wise to take him out, certainly you have to come to Congress before you can take an action of starting a, a confrontation with, with Iran. And I wish the administration were just honest. This was not an imminent attack that Soleimani was planning. You could understand if they were going after militias who were planning something on the ground. You're going after one of the senior leaders. This was retribution. This was retribution for what Soleimani had done. And if they wanted to do that, they had to come to Congress and seek that justification. The reality is this. I mean, do you remember any of our embassies being stormed at when President Obama was there? Do you remember any American contractors being killed by Iranians? Of course not. The situation was largely stable. It's Trump that has destabilized the progress that Secretary Kerry, Secretary Clinton, and President Obama made. One of the things that's been written is that the United States and Iran have been fighting for decades. Right. But in this current iteration, the fight has been within Iraq and about Iraq. And, you know, the, the whole blow up over this miss 
released letter from the Pentagon <laughs> saying that up oh, the troops are coming, the troops are 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 evacuating, evacuating Iraq. That it, there are all these dominoes that are falling into place. Why is it important? Leave aside the current American president. Right. Why is it important for the United States to serve as a check on Iranian influence in the region? Well, here is the irony. We strengthened Iran because of the war in Iraq. That's basically what happened, right? What, it, what took place? We toppled Saddam Hussein, a Sunni leader, and in its place, a Shiite uh, regime uh, came into power that was close to Iran. And because that Shiite regime, with Soleimani's uh, influence, was so brutal on the Sunnis, that's what in part gave rise to ISIS. And Soleimani, in some sense, was actually aligned in certain fights with the United States in fighting ISIS. So the whole picture has been complicated because of our initial, what I call the original sin, of going into Iraq. The problem, in my view, is now we're trying uh, to play balance of power politics and say, oh, now that uh, Iran is becoming too powerful, how do we place a check with them? And I wish America would just learn our lesson that we shouldn't continue to play balance of power politics in the Middle East where we end up supporting regimes or opposing regimes that later on turn to get us into a mess. Uh, And what we ought to do is responsibly extricate ourselves and allow these countries to develop on their own. And yes, we ought to be speaking out for human rights and democracy, but as John Quincy Adams warned, not sending our troops to try to fashion the world and do that by force. How do we, ex- as you said, responsibly extricate ourselves from places, uh, fr- from the theater in in the Middle East, particularly Iraq, when President, I think President Bush tried it, President Obama certainly tried it, President Trump promised to do it, right. and then made a big show of kind of doing it. But now there are more troops in Iraq and the Middle in the Middle East than there were when he came into office. Is there really a way to responsibly extricate ourselves, as you said? I do think so. I mean, I don't remember the numbers, but I give President Obama a lot of credit on Iraq. I think when he took office, there were uh, uh, tens of thousands of troops there, and he drew the number down quite significantly until ISIS became a threat. President Obama really was winding down the war. He understood that in order to be able to extricate ourselves, we needed to have some peace with Iran, that Iran uh, could actually be a regional partner in the fight against ISIS, and that we couldn't be fighting a two-front war against ISIS uh, and against Iran. So the Iran nuclear deal was part of the strategy to bring some stability to the region so we could extricate it. The problem with Trump is he started the maximum pressure campaign on Iran. And that's what's led to these escalation of threats against Americans in that region. And so we've had to send more troops there to protect Americans' troops fighting ISIS now because they're also facing threats from Iran. So I think to withdraw responsibly, the first step is to reestablish relationships with Iran to get back into the JCPOA and then to see how we can uh, work with the Iraqi government and Iran and rely on them to have the fight against ISIS in Iraq and start pulling out our troops. Another thing that you want to do, and just on the last point you were just making, I mean, good luck to <laughs> 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 have that happen. Yeah. But, um, but certainly, cer- certainly, look, I'm not saying I could wave a wand or the next Democratic president can wave a wand and uh, fix everything. But 
it's important to realize how destructive Trump has been. And it's important to understand how visionary Obama was. I mean, he was redeeming American foreign policy in that region from the original overthrow of Mossadegh in 1953. And had he managed to reset Iran-U.S. relations, it could have put the Middle East towards peace. And what he did, one of the biggest crimes that Trump has done to this country or the biggest blunders is undermining what Obama achieved on the U.S.-Iran relationship. You know, one of the things that, speaking of President Obama and what's happening now, is there's a lot of criticism of President Obama and President Trump for relying on an old authorization for the use of military force, an AUMF, from 2002, which was used to justify or used to authorize uh, troops to go into the Middle East. And that was under President George W. Bush. And then President Obama used it. Right. And now President Trump apparently is using it to justify the hit on Soleimani. Right. I mean, it's they're using two justifications and it's conflicting. One, they're saying that the authorization in 2002 to go to war in Iraq justifies the killing of Soleimani because he happened to be in Iraq. I mean, it's the most absurd argument. We're fighting Iran. And yet because it's on the Iraqi battlefield doesn't mean that the authorization to strike Saddam Hussein gives you uh, the power to strike actually Saddam Hussein's enemy, which was Iran. So it it makes no logical sense. They're just hoping to obfuscate the issue. Uh, And you look at Barbara Lee, and I've said that if uh, John F. Kennedy were to uh, write the Profiles of Courage today, uh, one person I know who would be included in that is Barbara Lee, because she was the lone vote. Think about this after 9-11, the lone vote against the 2001 authorization of force. And her argument wasn't that we shouldn't go after the al-Qaeda or the Taliban that struck us on 9-11. Her argument was that we're giving the president a blank check, that by not restricting the time and not restricting the geography, presidents would abuse this and would get us into wars endlessly, which we couldn't get out of. Well, she turned out to be right. And and here we are. And so now there are calls for, it have been calls actually, um, even when President Obama was still in office, for a new AUMF that would have time limits on it, that would require the president to come back to Congress to get it reauthorized. And there's a new effort afoot to do that now. What's the possibility of that happening, especially with Democrats in control of the House where, sure, pass there, but then Republicans are in control in the Senate and that's a whole other issue? Well, it should take place, right? I mean, even if you want war with Iran, Don't you think that the current Congress should make that decision and not a Congress from 2001 or a Congress from 2002? I mean, uh, if you're that confident that the president has done the right thing, why doesn't he have the courage to come convince the American people that it's the right thing and have Congress vote on it? The problem is that the House and the Senate in the past has been fine criticizing from the sidelines. They haven't wanted to take hard votes. And so we complain about the president's power, but the reality is most members of Congress and senators, uh, with a few notable exceptions like Barbara Lee, have been totally fine with the president having this power. And that's why the politics of it, uh, certainly in the Senate, uh, there's no appetite to bring a a new authorization of military force. And there's no agreement on what that should look like. So obviously everyone agrees that we should be able to go after terrorists overseas. Uh, but how do you draft that in a way that's narrow and doesn't get give the president an ability 
to uh, abuse it. My view is these should be limited. I mean, maybe you have to renew authorization to military force every two years so that you don't have these indefinite grants to the president. Okay, back to the three fellas. Congressman <laughs> Gates, Congressman Jordan, Congressman Meadows, members of the Freedom Caucus. And now I'm even more mystified. These guys were in favor of your your resolution that was stripped out of the NDAA. Correct. That would have forced the Pentagon to come to Congress to get the funds to do the strike in Iran. But these three, unless I've missed it, have been notably silent. It's worse than that. They've been defending the president's strike. So how... Explain this to me. How... how (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me tell you what they're saying on on their face. They're saying that the amendment we had had an exception, limited exception for self-defense, which any person would say, right? I mean, if there was a militia in Iran about to hit American troops. No one would say that the American president or commander in chief didn't have the right to uh, hit that militia to prevent protect American troops. So what they're trying to do is say that the Soleimani killing fits within this exception on self-defense. And it just doesn't. I mean, I there, if they did, Pompeo would be able to say, in two weeks, this was going to be the strike. It was going to strike in this location. They, you don't have to give the intelligence. You could just say they were planning a strike here in two weeks. And by the way, here was Soleimani's involvement and why taking Soleimani out is going to prevent that strike. But, you know, the, the, the reality is this was not taking out militia on the people on the ground. There was no imminent actual attack on their way. And if the standard for self-defense is going to be that the American president can attack anyone, uh, any country where they're drawing up possible plans to attack America, I mean, that's basically a check, a blank check to go to war with anyone who's coming up with scenarios of possible attacks. So they obviously are not being uh, consistent, <laughs> but it's very hard, right? We, we were able to get that amendment because it was before Trump attacked, and that was a window for us. Now it's going to be much harder to put together a coalition because you've had people go into their partisan lens and it's going to be tough to get Republicans to criticize the president after the fact. This is the thing that that has concerned me the most and driven me the most crazy. And I've written this many times and I've said this many times, so I apologize for boring you bringing this up again, uh, dear listener. But I am old enough to remember the Republican Party of Reagan, H.W. Bush, W. Bush, and then all the Republican members of Congress, McCain, Romney, high-profile senators and members of Congress, legendary Republicans. Those are the people I learned about the Republican Party from. And now in the short space of three years, I have watched decades of ideology and beliefs and convictions just go up in thin air. Let me give you a personal, very concrete anecdote to to illustrate your point. One of the things I deeply admired about John McCain is when there was a heated campaign with President Obama and someone said, uh, President Obama is a monster. John McCain actually immediately cut him off and said, no, he's a patriot. He is a person who cares about his country. We have very different views, but don't say that he's a monster. Well, last night, Doug Collins, who's the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, went on Laura Ingram's show on Fox News uh, 
purposefully mispronounced my name over and over again and said anytime Ro Khanna opens his mouth, uh, he's hurting America and he does no good for America. I mean, you would never, ever hear a John McCain or even a George Herbert Walker Bush or a Ronald Reagan engage in that kind of uh, questioning, innuendo, uh, undermining of a person's patriotism. And the it's important to understand what has happened, the radicalization of the Republican Party and how race and immigration are right. They're not even below the surface anymore. They're right. They're sort of shouting it out loud, you know, on and 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 making not making a policy argument, not saying, you know, Ro Khanna is is policy is dead wrong about uh, Iran, but making fun of my name, making fun of who I am, delegitimizing a person in that way. And it's 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 scary to to see the transformation a few years from the John McCain's and George Herbert Walker Bushes uh, to that kind of politics. Do you think we can ever go back to those days where there was real bipartisanship, where there was a real effort to work on problems on solving problems on behalf of the American people? I do. The question is, I don't know how much damage there's going to be in the process, right? I mean, I I think Trump has corrupted the public discourse in this country in a way that could take a generation to recover. The people at the border who have been families have been separated, that's never going to recover. The fact that you've got now Iranian nationals who have contacted our office, uh, some who are U.S. citizens who are being harassed or detained coming into the country, that's not going to to recover. So do I think at some point people are going to wake up and say, you know what, uh, we don't have more manufacturing jobs and we don't have new jobs and this president hasn't actually delivered in improving our life? Yes. Uh, but how much damage is going to have taken place and how much damage both in our standing around the world and in our culture here at home? And, and it's a shame because that could take years and years and years to dig out of. So is Bernie Sanders the solution? And I raised the I, I asked the question because yes. you have endorsed Senator Sanders. I'm as co-chair of his campaign. Co-chair of his campaign for president in twenty in twenty twenty. So he's the solution. Well, no one is in gonna wave a wand and 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 be the complete solution to a multicultural, multiracial democracy that we're transitioning to. But I think he's a move in a very positive direction for two reasons. One, he's been consistent in opposing unconstitutional wars from the uh, from Vietnam to Iraq uh, to his statements on Yemen uh, to uh, Iran. And I endorsed him because of my work with him on Yemen. We passed for the first time the War Powers Resolution to stop that war. And I believe he would focus instead on building our nation up in providing people with education, with health care, with infrastructure. Second, when you look at the communities who've been left behind, and I, as you know, Jonathan, I represent one of the most affluent districts in this country, Apple, Google, the heart of Silicon Valley. And you look at both rural communities and minority communities that have been totally left out, in my view, of the wealth generation of the new economy. Uh, I think Bernie Sanders has a plan of investment in education, in health care, in housing, in infrastructure that gives people a basic shot. I, I guess I w- here's my question to folks. I'm the son of immigrants. I was born in Philadelphia in 1976. Why can't this country give everyone the shot that I did had? You know, I got to go to a good public school. 
We had a middle-class background. I didn't have to worry about getting a hot lunch in school. I didn't have to worry about the safety in my neighborhood. I got to go to a good college. And today I represent Silicon Valley. All Bernie Sanders is saying is give that shot to everyone. Okay, I hear you on that. But, okay, here's my issue. If you're going to run for the Democratic presidential nomination, why aren't you, Senator Sanders, a Democrat? He's an independent, which is fine. But I I have a problem with someone who comes into my house (laughs) as a guest and tells me I should rearrange my furniture and then leaves. No responsibility for anything that's that's happened after he's told us all what to do and then the consequences of that um, have befallen us. Why won't, he, why won't he join the party? Well, he is running right now as a Democrat. I uh, think he did do a lot when Hillary Clinton was the nominee, contrary to some of the uh, commentary. I mean, he did uh, about 38 events for her uh, to, to campaign uh, for her. And look, I'm a lifelong Democrat. I mean, I started out my career, I knocked uh, doors for Barack Obama when he was running for the state Senate. And I did internships for Jimmy Carter and President Clinton and have, have been a lifelong Democrat. So he has a lot of Democrats uh, supporting him. But I think the reason he was an independent... Uh, Wait, did you say Carter? Carter, Jimmy Carter, yeah. Wait, Carter Center, you, Carter Center. Oh, okay. Because I was like, wait, you just said a moment no, no, ago. No, the Carter you were Center. born in '76. I was yeah. like, wait, what? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> that was, you know, that was one of the great honors was to get to meet President Carter uh, about six months ago and uh, on North Korea, and, and he's an incredible, incredible leader. But the 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 point is um, that Bernie Sanders was an in independent because for the longest time his ideas about uh, single payer health care free public college, ending constitutional wars, were not uh, the mainstream positions of the Democratic Party. Now, they were the positions of the Democratic Party with Harry Truman, who wanted single-payer health care, and they were the positions, actually, Jimmy Carter ran on single-payer national health care in 76 and 1. But in 1980, with the Reagan Revolution, a lot of those positions were removed from the Democratic platform. And so he was an oppositional voice to the DLC uh, and that direction of the party. Uh, but I think now uh, he has won a lot of those policy debates. I mean, whoever the nominee is, is moving in the direction of a stronger social safety net in terms of making public college affordable, in terms of uh, making health care a human right. And yet we still don't. I mean, I, thanks. The history that you've given us about single payer health care is great, but we still don't have it. And then if you look at public opinion polling and just interviews with people out in the country, folks are afraid of what single-payer health care could mean or what Medicare for all would mean for them. I mean, when Senator Harris was running for, for president, right. you know, she initially said, you know, do away with private insurance, and then heard from supporters, particularly union supporters, saying, hey, you know, look, we negotiated our great health care even, you know, did without pay increases to get the health plans that we have. And so she, her plan was one that had a long runway to get there. So how would, how 
Will Senator Sanders allay the fears of a lot of people out there who are afraid of his, as they might view it, radical attempt to over to remake American health care? Well, first of all, I think just to go over the history again, Harry Truman was the first person who proposed single payer health care. And he was it was called socialized medicine back then. And uh, they're still calling it that. They're still calling it that, you know, but he had the courage to push it back then. I mean, and, you know, Jimmy Carter, for people who say you can't win a national election, Jimmy Carter ran on national single payer health care in 1976. The irony, you know why he had to adopt that? Because the unions back then said, we're not going to support a southern moderate governor unless he's for single payer. And so Carter adopts single payer to win the primary and he wins the general election. By the way, they asked him, how, how are you going to pay for it? And someone could look at the 76 New York Times article. And Carter says, we'll figure that out when I'm president. So, you know, that was Jimmy. So, so is that Senator Sanders' response now, <laughs> no, too? No, I mean, uh, now, now we've actually got much more details. We say we're going to tax the, the corporations and tax the wealthy to, to pay for it. But let's talk about what this is going to mean for people. It's going to mean you get health care and you're not going to have those premiums. You're not going to have those copays. You're not going to have those deductibles. By the way, one in four Americans are uh, don't get the health care they need because of the costs, because they don't want to get the deductibles, because they can't afford the prescriptions. You know, my mom's getting hearing aids. Unfortunately, she uh, can afford it. Three, $4,000 bill. Imagine how many people in this country aren't getting uh, hearing aids because they can't afford it. So we're saying you're going to get health care. It's going to be free. You're also going to get health- hearing. You're going to get dental. You're going to get vision. And by the way, If you still want more under Sanders' bill, you can get supplemental insurance. I mean, in Great Britain or Canada, you can still get supplemental private insurance if you're rich. So what is the issue? I mean, everyone who's getting health care and you're getting it for free and you're getting more coverage should be for it. The seniors should be the most for it because long-term care is covered, vision is covered, dental is covered. So the only real criticism is, well, who's going to pay for it? I mean, and I get if you're in the top 1%, you shouldn't be for this. Your taxes are going to go up. If you are uh, in that category, you're going to have to pay more. And the corporations, by the way, are going to have to pay uh, a, a payroll tax. But look at AT&T, 25% of their payroll on healthcare costs. Verizon, 33% of their payroll on healthcare costs. Most corporations and certainly small businesses are going to come out better with a payroll tax uh, and the savings for a single payer than the current premiums that keep going up. Now, if you're in the insurance industry, you shouldn't be for this. If you're in the pharmaceutical industry, you shouldn't be for this. If you're one of the hospital CEOs making six million bucks, you shouldn't be for it. The the final point is this. I keep hearing, well, you know, uh, what if you can't get this through? What if McConnell is the Senate majority leader? What if you don't have the That's not an unreasonable question. It's not unreasonable. But when do we, we campaign in our vision, right? We campaign on what the ideal is. Does anyone doubt that if... We start with this and there was some compromise to improve the bill that Sanders wouldn't sign it. Of course he would sign it. He was supportive of the Affordable Care Act. It's not like he voted against it. But the point is, have a sense of what you want to fight for. Have a sense of what your vision is. You know, I mean, Linda Johnson didn't say, let's let's reduce poverty by 10 percent. He said, let's eliminate poverty. And then you can focus on how you get there. But I'm still trying to hear or understand how the senator would argue and convince people who are maybe still on the fence how you're going to provide free health care, free education, and a bunch of other things, the Green New Deal and all of that, and it not impact their 
financial security, their economic security, because it's not just how much money is coming out of their pay in terms of healthcare costs or outrageous student loan debt. But it also is, you know, the the consequences of some of these things that could lead to job losses and other economic losses where, you know, livelihoods are changed. There's a lot of fear out in the country sure. and fear about some of these plans that I've heard and read regular everyday citizens calling radical. Well, they're not they're not radical. What we're talking about actually is creating more jobs. Consider the infrastructure bill. I mean, if if Trump had not put a trillion and a half dollars into a tax cut and had put two trillion dollars into infrastructure, that would have created, according to the American Society of Engineers, four to five million jobs, blue collar jobs, jobs across this country. And uh, that's the type of investment that Senator Sanders is talking about. Now, some of them could be clean tech jobs and solar and wind, but they're going to run the gamut of the different types of jobs. And then you talk to the average person and you say, here's how your life's going to be better. You know, I mean, I turned out to be fortunate. I took about $100,000 out for law school loans. But for most people, those loans can be crippling. And they're a reason that people don't go to to college or don't go to trade school. So you're not going to have that burden. And by the way, it's not to go to Dartmouth or Harvard or Yale. It's to go to a public university. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about give everyone the chance to have uh, as much education as they want. Give everyone a chance to have health care. Give everyone a chance to have basic child care so they can make something of themselves in this country. And the people who are going to pay for it, well, people in my district. I mean, we've got, we've got more millionaires, more billionaires that we, we know what to do with. They can pay a little bit more. And you know this idea that they're going to, if you have a 2% wealth tax or 3% wealth tax, that they're going to take their money overseas. I actually had someone do the research. It turns out 87% of American wealth is in the United States. The next closest is uh, 2% in the Cayman Islands, 1.5% in Great Britain. So the reason is because America is still the best place to invest. So these rich people are saying, oh, we'll take our money out of the United States. They're the same people who said we're going to leave if Donald Trump becomes president. How many of your friends said that? Guess what? They're still in America because America is still the best place to live. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't have uh, – I have some super wealthy friends, well, but, but, but not enough. <laughs> so look, they can pay more. These companies, Amazon can pay some tax, 0% tax. It's absurd. They can pay – and why is it that the Republicans – who have run up huge deficits. Every time a Republican comes, what do they do? They increase defense spending, they cut taxes. Then a Democrat comes, and, or Clinton or Obama, and they've got to clean it up. And then the Republican comes and they do their priorities. Why is it that they get to say, oh, 4% economic growth is going to fix everything? Why don't we talk about economic growth? Our party, our investment in education, our investment in infrastructure, our investment in healthcare, that's going to get 3 4% economic growth. It's actually more plausible than what Trump is arguing. You know, one of the, the amazing things about the race on the Democratic side is just how much money the candidates are raising. You, you, you've got 14 candidates running for the Democratic nomination, and just the, the seven who have announced so far, they have raised three times as much combined as President Trump. The leader in all of that is Senator Sanders, who in the last quarter of 2019 raised an astounding $34.5 million. 
And according to NBC News, in all of 2019, Senator Sanders has raised $108.9 million, which is spectacular. Where's all this money coming from? It's, it's really remarkable. And it's coming from teachers and Amazon workers and uh, workers. You'd be real cute there. No, 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 no. <laughs> Amazon workers. Well, well, it is. It's one of his largest contributors are workers at, at Amazon. I mean, and workers at McDonald's. I mean, it's fascinating. It's amazing what he's managed to do. But, you know, it's amazing what this field has managed to do. I think about growing up. I said I grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Someone Indian American at that time was 99% white. And if you had asked me, Ro, there's going to be, uh, when you turn uh, 43, a presidential field where you're going to have multiple African-American candidates for president, where you're going to have five to six women candidates for president, where you're going to have someone gay running for president, where you're going to have a Jewish democratic socialist running for president, where you're going to be able to raise money through grassroots organizing. I would say you're you're crazy. I, I wouldn't have envisioned that this that's what this country would be possible in this country. And I guess that's what gives me hope just in my own lifetime when you see that possibility. And I give President Obama tremendous credit for that. I wouldn't have been in Congress if Obama hadn't won the presidency. I think uh, he changed people's conception of what leadership looked like. Donald Trump is a terrible reaction to that. It's a dark chapter. But then you look at the vibrancy of our field, uh, and that, that gives me hope. And yet, here we are. Yes, there were lots of representation of the diversity of our nation, and yet Senator Harris black woman from California, dropped out at the race. Secretary Julian Castro of Texas, Latino, had to drop out of the race. When this campaign started, there was a lot of sort of very prideful, and I think justifiably so, in just what you were just saying about the fact that the Democratic Party has a deep bench and a bench that looks like America. And yet right now, as we sit here, that bench is becoming increasingly white, or as um, on Saturday Night Live in their spoof of the last debate, um, where the Judy Woodruff character says, this is just like The Bachelor, the longer it goes on, the whiter it gets. <laughs> what does that say about the party, really, that a party that thrives on diversity and is very diverse and looks like the nation when it comes to the candidates for president of the United States, the party, through donations and support, public support, are tending not to the candidates of color, but to the other candidates, to the white candidates. I'd say it says a few things. First, obviously, we have a ways to go. We've come a long way and that the field is far more diverse than it even was in 16 or 2008, and, and that's incredible. But we haven't come to a place where uh, the finalists are as diverse uh, as, as they should be. And it, in my view, um, gives me greater admiration for what Obama achieved. I don't think we fully understand what a Herculean task that was. There was a sense in a debate back then that uh, did Obama ride the wave of history or did he defy the odds in becoming uh, the first person of color to lead a Western democracy. And I think what we've seen post that is he defied the odds. I mean, he was this extraordinary, you know, 
complete package. I mean, it's it's uh, almost the worst article you can have in American politics is you're the next Obama, right? I mean, you don't want that written <laughs> about you because he was so extraordinary. No one can measure up. And so I think that gave us a false sense. It said like, okay, he did this for two terms and now the floodgates are open. But what he showed is if you are an exceptional genius at all these things, then you can be president of the United States after we've had the worst financial crash since the Great Depression. But he, we were probably overly optimistic in how far the country had come on that. And a more realistic picture is probably 16, where at least people are on the stage, they're at the table, but they're not yet at the head of the table. But we'll get there. And the question is, how long is it going to take? And that's... Uh, for all of us to, 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 to find and work. But when I see the freshman class of Congress, I mean, remember the same country that elected Donald Trump, elected the squad, uh, elected all these women, elected this diversity. And what we're trying to do, Jonathan, as a nation, to become the first multicultural, multiracial democracy in the history of the world, given the original sins of slavery and what happened to the Native Americans, it's a very, very difficult project. And it is going to be hard. I think we had, we were too optimistic about how easy it was going to be post-Obama. You've been in Congress now. You're in your second term? Second term. In your second term. So now as a member of Congress and being a member of the House Budget Committee, Armed Services Committee, Oversight and Reform, um, you were in the skiff, I believe, when that horde of Republicans stormed in with their phones and everything, which is a complete violation of a lot of rules in the House. So you've seen a lot and you know a lot about what's happening, what's going on in the country. So my final question to you is, knowing all of those things, what keeps you awake at night? How fearful are you as a member of Congress for the future and security of the United States? I'm fearful for our internal divisions and wounds, not division of Republican, Democrat, and bipartisanship. I'm fearful for the divisions of along economic, racial, religious, cultural lines. Uh, you have two very different competing visions for America. You have the vision Obama was taking us to, which is that we're going to become this multicultural, multiracial, multireligious democracy uh, where everyone is going to have a shot at the American dream. And you have the stark opposite with Donald Trump, who is defining America in racial terms, in cultural terms, and has stoked divisions that are uh, that are real and are going to be hard to overcome. And so when I look at Congress and I look at the fact that you could replace all of us tomorrow, and I believe this with all my heart, I don't think if you put new people in, it would solve the issue because the it's not Congress that's polarized. It's the country that's polarized. And uh, that is a hard, hard problem. And I don't know how we begin to stitch the country back together. I know it's not just going to mean I'll go work with Republicans and Democrats. It's going to mean someone who can go into these communities and, and build the type of coalition on economic and racial issues. Uh, the type of work, frankly, that Reverend Barber is doing with the Poor People's Campaign. But I, I almost, I look to sort of civic leaders like that to sort of renew the American purpose, renew the American spirit. Uh, that's what keeps me up is is how divisive the, the, we, the time we live in. Congressman Ro Khanna of California, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.